Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday, and... (laughs) I'm still hobbling around with a cane in pain. It's a real bummer, but um, I want to do the podcast today. Um, I'm happy that uh, to say that the Raftans, Mrs. Estelle Raftan, um, is sponsoring today as she has in the past in, uh, for the yard sale for her mom, Lisa Hammermish, uh, Liba Baspitsalo, who's from uh, the, was a, a survivor in the war. Um, it's this, she writes to me she was from Ludge. Some people on my show from Ludge, born in 23. So that means she would have been almost 100. Would have been almost 100. And she was raised in her grandparents' house. She had fond memories of her bubby. Well, in other words, let's put it this way. If she's born in 23, that means she was 16, 17 when the war hit. And I think you know, if you that was the wrong place to be. If you lived in Poland, life turned upside down, momish, in 39. So you had up to 16 or 17 years old and then completely different. <clears throat> All was lost in the show, as she writes. Uh, and we've written her. She was in large ghetto and concentration camps. But uh, she survived to see some of the grandchildren and would have been thrilled with the great-grandchildren, two of whom had birthdays in the last two weeks. Okay. Ahuva Goldberg, eight years old, and Annie Lazaro, six years old. And Annie's father had a birthday this week, Alan Lazaro. So uh, my mom, she says, had high standards, <laughs> and I'm happy to say she would have been proud of all the family, uh, and they're sponsoring the podcast today. Uh, you know, I just would share with you one point, because I spoke, and I mean, my parents went through the world, so not exactly in that way, um, my father sort of did, but, um, <clears throat> you know, the times are a-changing. Uh, if I would speak to Mrs. Rectan, I'd say, your your mother was from the sheriff's I played the that's the lingo we all use. That means they're survivors from the war. I'm just thinking, if I told my kids, and certainly grandchildren, you know, I met somebody from the Sheriff's Plata. I don't think in American circles that's how they talk anymore. I guess you'd have to say she's a survivor from World War II or something like that. The lingo has changed. It's, it's interesting. You know, in other words, the world that me, myself, and I grew up in, and Mrs. Rechtan, was a world peopled by survivors of the war. And by the ghosts of those who did not. My children have grown up in a different world than my grandchildren. I mean, they, they they know intellectually World War II happened, but they also know intellectually World War One happened and the Spanish-American War. It's, a, it's an interesting <coughs> phenomenon. But anyway, as is always the case, especially when anyone who's of Ud Mutsumayesh and Liba um, Basbatal, especially, uh, you know, went through all... I mean, Poland, you're talking about 1939 to 45 or 44, whatever... That's beyond, beyond, you know, uh, six years of that stuff. But anyway, so we pay tribute to your memories. I'm going to have leave. I wanted to say a few words today. Just came to my mind about the results of the election. A lot of things they're reading in the paper in Israel. I'm talking about not in America, uh, where you see for the first time, it seems, 
they're going to have a, a government, all the right-wing parties. It's actually the Likud plus from parties. I mean, that's what it is. And uh, people are freaking out. The journalists and the others are what they call the override clause. That's what I'm reading. And that has to do with uh, clipping the wings of the Israeli Supreme Court. And therein lies a tale in a much broader historical context. In societies, organized societies, you have to have laws, and that means courts. But if you know the history of law, you'll know that throughout history, there's just a natural dynamic for judges to want to grab as much power as they possibly can. It's built into the judge system and the court system, and the fact that judges feel, not incorrectly, that they have greater knowledge of the law than anyone else, and therefore they should de determine it. Versus the other side, which says, no, the judges are there just to, to, to adjudicate the laws that we tell them to adjudicate. And they should shut their mouth in their face about everything else. I can't tell you how old this is. It goes back centuries and centuries. And that's really why, uh, in the history of the European states, uh, they issued the great law codes. The Code of Napoleon, the Code of Louis XIV, the Code of Frederick the Great, the Code of Catherine the Great, the Code of this, the Code of that. <clears throat> Very often these continental codes, as they were called, were pretty doggone specific. And they had as one of their features to clarify the law, but another feature was to deprive the judiciary of what they regarded as too much authority. Now, you know who writes about this? I mean, it's a classic thing in the history of law. But if you weren't interested in the Jewish angle, get Menachem Elod, who wrote the, um, what do you call it, the Mishpat Ivri. Menachem Elod was a Dati guy who was on the Israeli Supreme Court. And before that was a very big law professor at the uh, University of uh, Hebrew University Law School, I believe. And he's a from guy. He used to come to Baltimore to speak once in a while. A real egghead. Oh my goodness, an egghead. And he knew a Velt, and he published these three volumes in Hebrew, Mishpat Ivri, which a guy in my show, actually, Melvin Sykes, uh, translated in four big volumes, Jewish Law. It's called Jewish Law Sources and something like that. And it's a masterful, it's obviously a, a course that he gave in university law school, and it's a history of law and how Judy's Jewish law fits into that. If you're a law-type interesting person, interested person, if you're not... You know, go look up what the Orioles and what the Yankees did. Now, uh, and in there he talks about the fact that you had these continental uh, uh, legal systems, which, as I said before, were always out there to sort of clip the wings of the judiciary, to deprive them of, which, how should I put it, extra options, because they might take it too far. What's fascinating is that in the Torah system, in the pure Torah system, we have the same tension. As you know, originally it's the Torah Shabbat Shabbat Torah Shabbat Peh. What is the meaning of the word Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral law? What's the meaning of that? You're not supposed to write it down. Why was there a taboo in writing it down? I think most people don't get this. I know, I've spoken about it before. The taboo in writing it down was, because you don't want to, because the, the, the notion of the oral law of Torah Shabbat is saying that we're favoring the judges over anyone else. 
in the history of Kali Yisrael. I'm talking about Torah judges. So you don't want to deprive a, to use modern language, you don't want to deprive a posik of the maximum flexibility to see it the way he sees it, whether it be Machmer or to be Mekel. Uh, a classic posik is supposed to know the sources of the law, halacha. In the old days, he would learn it orally from a Rebbe or a series of Rebbe's, sort of a master-disciple type situation. And then he, when he reached a certain point, would start to be a judge himself, in other words, with Paskin, and uh, would do so in an extremely individualistic way, so that if two people come with the same shaila, in one case they'll say it's motor, in the other case also because he's taking a lot of factors into account, which is something a rabbi actually does encounter, but he has less flexibility if he's from. Now, in the long run, the Torah Shabbat Peh was written down. Although in the form of the Gemara, so it wasn't quite the same as it had been before. Although relative to what it had been before, it did clip the wings of the Posit because it reduces the parameters of a sugya or of the possibilities of what a judge, a Posit, can say. Um, but of course, it's very wide. The Gemara is not systematic. Later on, as we know, they emerged within Judaism law codes. The only difference is, I'm talking about from Judaism, the difference is that they're written by individuals. We don't have a, a, a tradition in the rabbinic world of collective activity until very recently, uh, when we copied it from the Goyim. Throughout history, the Rambam wrote his own Encyclopedia Britannica, so to speak. The Tour, the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, the Lavush, down to the Aruch HaShulchan, the Mishabur, they all, wrote, they all did their own thing. You know, like a gigantic, I think of the Archa Shulchan, which was 100 years ago, 120 years ago. It's like Encyclopedia Britannica of Halokha, written by one guy on his own with no, with no collaboration. Uh, when you get law codes, then it kind of, as I say before, restricts the, uh, what shall I say, the options available to the rabbi to deal with this in this case. I myself had a certain case today in Hilchus Tarsh Mishpacha. Believe it or not, I would have liked a little more leeway than the sources allow, but I'm stuck with what the sources allow. You understand? Even though there's a wide range of sources and post-Kimachron, but you can't just make up your own sort of thing because the rabbi tastes not expected to do that. Unless you're like a Godelador, like a Moshe Feinstein, something like that. So that's within Judaism. Within the Ghanim, is, is is more so. And the reason I say that is because a basic difference between Judaism on the one hand and the other cultures is that Judaism has a self-denying ordinance. The from Judaism believes that long ago there was a Sanhedrin, they could legislate, but that's been gone for a long time. And since then, you don't have any body, no legal body that can issue legislation for Klali's robe. So like, that's part of the Gaulish. Now, by the Goyim, it's not true. When you have a new issue that pops up, there's something called the legislature, of some form or another, and they can issue laws, and those laws have the authority and the legitimacy given to it by law, by the power of the state. The Jews never had a church or a state since the Corbin, so they had to go on a, on a consensual basis, which is something different. Now, I hope I'm making myself clear. Now, the funny part is that, therefore, I'm dealing with a phenomenon that exists across the board among Jews and among non-Jews. Um... In the history 
of the European countries, uh, they have this tension in which they want to legislate the laws, they want to, the, the, the judges to adjudicate the laws, but sometimes the society did not like the way the judges are pushing things, and they, the society may, the legislature, the government, may, as they say before, restrict in law what the, what, what, what the judges can do. In, in America, we have a funny tradition on this, and in Israel, funnier. In America, they started with a constitution. Bracious Bar is a constitution, uh, which got adopted by the states. And although the constitution didn't exactly say it took precedence over state law, but that was the direction it was heading, and the Civil War ended that one, baby. So you have the national legislature and the Congress. But the Constitution was set up by the Founding Fathers to have division, of, uh, separation of powers and divide it all up and uh, shouldn't be that any one branch, the executive, legislative, or judiciary should have superpower. It should be checked by the others, checks and balances. But in America, it's funny because the Constitution says what the President does, more or less, and it says what the Congress does, more or less. It never really said what the Supreme Court does, more or less. It was just taken for granted. Supreme Court will be the Supreme Court. You know, that will be the highest court. You know, you can the highest appeals court or something like that. Uh, in spite of that, which ought to have resulted in a relatively weak Supreme Court, which just satisfied itself by addressing and adjudicating cases of written law, we all know that, I think, you know, let, let me put it this way. Anybody with a basic American education knows I don't know about the people listening in Chutzlarts. <laughs> so, uh, if, but in American history, you had John Marshall, who was one of the uh, Supreme Court um, chief justices, and he was able to be Covea in the early 1800s, a certain bluff, which was the Supreme Court is not only the highest court in the land, the highest appeals court for existing laws, but the Supreme Court can poskin whether laws are constitutional, whether they're legal, based on the idea that everything is subordinate to the U.S. Constitution. So the Supreme Court can say, if Congress did something that didn't match the, what the Constitution lays down, then by definition what Congress did doesn't count because it's not constitutional. Uh, now, the funny part is, the Constitution of the United States never says he can do that, the court can do that, but he got away with it. And that set a pattern... So in other words, the public in America, obviously, was okay with the idea that the Congress, that the Supreme Court can poskin that certain acts of the government, even though they're uh, legislated in a proper way, you know, with majorities in both houses of Congress and so forth and so on, nevertheless can fail to become law because the Supreme Court said there's something like a a mazuyif mitocho, they're puzzle mass and they... They can't be right because they they fail to conform to the Constitution, and you can't do something that fails to conform to the Constitution. So, um, I'm just going to give an example, making something off the top of my head. Suppose the Congress passed a law that the, the government should uh, support the Catholic Church. So, who's to say that they can't pass a law like that? Well, the Constitution says you can't have establishment of, a, of, of any church. But the Congress did it. The Supreme Court can then say, no, see, you're going against what it says in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, therefore the law you pass doesn't count. But that gave a tremendous power to the Supreme Court, 
mind you, the Supreme Court is not endowed with any police or army, so they just had to uh, uh, assume that the public would support it. So it's a matter of a certain charisma. <clears throat> there have been cases in American legal history, many people know this, where the President of the United States or somebody like that says, the heck with the Supreme Court, despite what you say, I'm not going to listen. Two very famous, and, and there was nothing the Supreme Court could do about it. Because they, because at the end of the day, it's a bluff. So, for example, comes to mind uh, when Andrew Jackson was the president, and he persecuted the Cherokee Indians, which he did, and he did like a, I won't say a Holocaust, but yeah, he was very cruel to them. And the Cherokee Indians appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court told Jackson, "You have to back off. What you're doing is unconstitutional." He said, "I'm gonna do it anyway." What army can you do to force me not to listen to, to listen to you? In other words, he called the bluff. And because Andrew Jackson was a very popular president, so he didn't have the charismatic public reaction, oh, he's going against the Supreme Court. And, and Andrew Jackson was able to get away with it. That's why you have the states of, um, of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and so forth, which became white man states. The Indians were kicked out. Uh, I'm not saying it was right, but I'm just saying he got away with it, and the Supreme Court be, was proved to be irrelevant. So notice, when the government wants to play hardball, they did. And there was nothing the Supreme Court could do about it. Another very famous episode in American history comes to mind, which was um, in, the Supreme, in the Civil War, when Abraham Lincoln, I live in Baltimore, you know, in, in Baltimore and in Maryland, they suspended the Constitution, and they could arrest a person and throw him in jail without a trial, without telling him why he was arrested. No, it was violating all the constitutional rights, and the Supreme Court at that time was uh, said it's also it's unconstitutional, it's a violation of uh, habeas corpus and, and the rights that are guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. And Abraham Lincoln said, tough luck. And there was literally nothing they could do. Matter of fact, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was Roger Taney or Tawney. I live a block off of Taney uh, Road, and uh, Tawney, if you want to get technical, and, you know, like in, in the Lower East Side, you got Houston and Houston. And uh, what do you call it? He'd been appointed by Andrew Jackson, by the way. And uh, Abraham Lincoln said to Tony, there's nothing you could do about it. And there wasn't, you know. And there have been certain other episodes. These are famous ones. <clears throat> so the basic idea got in there that the Supreme Court is able to declare something unconstitutional provided it has the public behind it. And that's a very tricky political question. We're already moving away from institutions to, you know, questions of politics. Meaning, how does the Olam feel? What's the Das at Sibor? And uh, therefore, it's very famous that in, um, what do you call it? In the uh, 1930s, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt put in a new deal, which changed a lot of basic rules that the Supreme Court had said, you know, are, are constitutional. In other words, the the New Deal that Roosevelt put in seemed to make rules that violated the Constitution, and Supreme Court Taka shot them down. It was a very famous case with a with a, a Schechter, you know, with the I think it was a Schechter House or something like that, uh, where uh, a little schnooky Jewish lawyer, you know, beat Roosevelt in the Supreme Court. Supreme Court said there was also, because at that time, the Supreme Court was very, very conservative, economically conservative. 
and Roosevelt was very angry. And when he got triumphantly reelected in 1936, he won every state except for two. So he said, I'm going to fix the Supreme Court. And he tried to knock them out um, by adding new judges and things like this. And the country wouldn't back him. That's one of the famous defeats of FDR. There weren't many when he tried to, uh, to, to, to change the Supreme Court. So at that time, he had the, 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 the public against him. It was on the side of the court. So you see what I'm saying? It's, it's very tricky. Uh, in my lifetime and in the last decades, Supreme Court uh, has uh, sometimes pushed uh, very um, unilateral kinds of declarations. For example, they started in the 1950s by saying it's a civil rights for all um, um, uh, African Americans and separate is not equal. And that's a whole business by itself, uh, which revolutionized the legal system. But the country was on their side so they could get away with it. And the president at that time was Eisenhower. He was not going to go, he, you know, he was not going to go against the Supreme Court. So even though really, really, really the Congress of the United States should have issued legislation um, making it a free and equal uh, getting away, you know, it was doing away with all uh, racial discrimination, which was a bad thing, but the Congress never did it, so the Supreme Court did it, and, they got, and the Supreme Court was able to get away with it. In more recent times, as you know, uh, the Supreme Court sometimes uh, poskened on controversial issues in which there wasn't a consensus. Uh, most famously, uh, on the uh, Roe versus Wade, which has split the United States from then until today. Uh, and, you know, over to abortion. And there, the court, you know, said, we don't mind taking controversial steps. Well, not so push it. Um, because, mind you, what they said was, that, 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 you know, that there's a constitutional right to an abortion. The Constitution doesn't say that, but they argued that it implies it. Well, if you get the country behind you, it's one thing. But as you know, it's split between the Democrats, the Republicans, this group and that group. And it has called the role of the Supreme Court into, into question. And because of that, as we know, uh, ever since the 70s, I guess, certainly since Nixon, uh, when you have a Republican president, he tries to stop around conservative judges. And when you have a Democratic president, he stop around liberal judges. And there's no such thing anymore of saying, let's get the best person, male or female, who's the best legal scholar. Heck with that. They're also ideological and also committed to one side or the other that if I put in this person, he might vote against me and tie it that, you know, through legal scholarship, he can assert this opinion. Uh, as you know, recently, Supreme Court said the Constitution guarantees gay marriage, for example, things like that. In other words, things that weren't in the Constitution. So it's become a political football. And one of the things that the conservatives like about Trump is that he stopped the rise three judges, you know, which is making a, a, a change in the uh, laws. In other words, the Supreme Court has become very, very political. Uh, but that's the result of the process I just said. Now let's take a look at Medina Israel. There they have a, a, a funny history because the issue I'm raising is, does the court have the power? They're not elected. Do they have the power to make all these laws up and just say, no, we're not making laws. We're just poskening uh, Shilas which result in new legal norms, which really means that you're lying, you're making laws. But the Constitution never says the Supreme Court can make laws. Now, let's look at Israel. Um, it's very funny. If you know closely the history of Israel and the Supreme Court, and most people do not, there's a biography of Justice Agronaut 
I read years ago, which is very good on this. He was an American guy who was on the Supreme Court, I don't know, Ben-Gurion's time, whatever. Some will recall the Agronaut Commission, which investigated the Mechdal that the Israelis messed over in the Yom Kippur War. So, uh, when they set up the, the modern state of Israel in '48, so, they, first of all, they didn't have a constitution. And second of all, they just have a unicameral legislature. They just have one Knesset. There's not like a Senate and a House of Representatives, which is a very conservative type Zach, which is based on the idea that if you want to get a law really passed, it should go through a very slow process. I think it was, uh, uh, that's why in the U.S., you don't vote directly for the president, you vote for the, you know what I mean, the, uh, what do you call it, electoral college. Uh, I assume most of you know what I'm talking about when I say that. It's indirect elections. Jewish Kehillahs in Spain used to run the same way, indirect elections. Uh, now, so notice it's not pure democracy. It, it sort of is, but it's not pure democracy. But um, Israel, when, in '48, uh, to be perfectly honest, what happened was they proclaimed the state of Israel in May of '48, but there was no elections. It was an emergency government to fight the war. And as soon as the war was over, winding down in early '49, they had the first elections. Really, they were supposed to have elections... The first Israeli elections in early 49 were for a constitutional convention. Do you get it? That they were going to draw up a constitution like the United States did in 1787 where they had the constitutional convention in, in Philadelphia. But that's not what happened. They ran for 120 seats. You know, the parties got whatever they got, like Ben-Gurion got the most and so forth. They put together a coalition. And then they said like this, heck with the constitution. We got elected by the people so we declare ourselves a parliament. In other words, we're not going. Even though we ran not to be a parliament, but just to be a constitutional convention, but we're changing our minds. So we're going to call ourselves a parliament, and we're going to make all the laws. And the Israeli public went along with it. I remember Begin and other people at that time. They said, "Oh, this is wrong. You promised the public it was going to be something different—a constitutional convention—and there's no constitution." Blah blah blah. They became the Israeli government. And the legitimacy derived from the fact that every four years or so is free and fair elections. And so if you don't like what we're doing, vote us out. That gave it the legitimacy. And uh, Ben-Gurion was in charge for a long time. But nevertheless, every few years he had to go for an election. So in other words, what, it, it, the Knesset in Israel just sort of like happened. It wasn't like it was planned in any kind of way. So you have a unicameral legislature with the ability to make laws, without a constitution. So what that means is, and the public went along with it. Uh, now what that means is, that you basically allow for an electoral, for a, a parliamentary dictatorship, which is balanced by democratic elections. There actually was a term for this back in the early 50s, when they called it a totalitarian democracy. There was a book about that, by an Israeli uh, poli-sci guy. You get what I'm saying? In other words, there's no check and balance on what the Knesset could do. But to be perfectly frank, even Ben-Gurion said at that time, listen, we're in the middle of a war with the Arabs. We're trying to set up a state. We're bringing a million Olim. The situation is crazy. We need a government in which the, the Knesset, the government, can have the most powers possible. Again, what saves it from being dictatorship is 
In a few years, there'll be elections that you can vote us out. So the public has the right to express itself. But until then, it's like you give me total power. And Ben-Gurion's had total power. And they didn't have no Bill of Rights or things like that. So if they wanted to listen in on, uh, you know, spy on people or whatever they wanted to do. Set up concentration camps they were talking about doing for the communists in the early 50s, if you know. I mean, there's no, there were no checks and balance on the government. Is this you, like, trusted the government's honor that they would submit themselves for an election campaign every few years and it could be voted out. That's what gave it its legitimacy. So it was like a certain pure democracy without any checks and balances. Now, that means that, as you know, in Israel, they didn't set up a, something called a president like in America with powers. The president of Israel is just a figurehead. So, basically, if I get the support of 61 members of the Knesset, which is the majority, I can be the dictator. Whatever I want to say goes, as long as I can get those 61 to go along with me. And that's what they did. Okay, That is what they did. Now, it's okay with me, but it offended many Israeli liberals and intellectuals and junk like that uh, because they say it's not a system, it's too dictatorial, and there's nothing in place, and so forth. Now, mind you, from day one, they also set up a court system and a Supreme Court, right, the base uh, Bagats, because they want to have a court system because of the civilized society, nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm talking about Chiloni court system. You have to have appeals courts, because what if the lower courts mess up? And you have to have the highest appeal court, and that's what you call the, the, uh, the what do you call it, the Supreme Court. But the original idea... Ben-Gurion and the others had was, just like in America, it should be a highest appeal court. In other words, you're going on existing laws. They're not posketing whether those laws are constitutional or not, because Israel doesn't have a constitution. But instead, they're posketing on whether, you know, the plaintiff or the defendant is, is, is adhering to the, you know, to the laws as they exist on the books. <clears throat> you understand? This is what allowed the Israelis to do all kind of uh, security things to control the Arabs, and they call this group and that group and spy on them, and then whatever. And I think you know, maybe you don't know, that in Israel, they have uh, uh, the British laws from the old days, which is you have the right of habeas corpus, meaning I can't just get arrested. Stamazite. You got to come with a warrant, and you got to tell me what I'm doing wrong, and then I have to have a trial, which is an open and public trial, and so forth and so on, with a jury, the guns of business. But the truth is, they also had an escape clause left there from the British. If we want to, we can suspend that. And we can just arrest you and throw you in a dungeon and never take you out. We have that right. When I say we have that right, no one says we don't. You see, there's no constitution that says we don't. So I hope I'm clear about this. The way it developed in Israel, which is now 70 years old or whatever, is that you had a government with no, with, with, with untrammeled in its power. Now, in the early years, the Supreme Court in Israel was reluctant to, to mess with that. Rarely, once in a while they did, but generally speaking not, because there was a consensus among the people that the Arab threat is deadly and Ben-Gurion needs all the power he can get for national security purposes. And provided he doesn't overdo it, you know, we're, we're not going to, you know, uh, be too fine in our, uh, you know, legality over here. Uh, and Lemaisa, 99% of the time, even more, 
they didn't take advantage of this escape clause. It's very rare in the first years of Israel, or even down till today, that they just arrested somebody and held them without trial and all that kind of stuff. There are, if you know, if you're looking for the scandals, there are a few cases associated with the Shin Bet and the Mossad, national security stuff. There are a few. And the Taka were held without trial and so on and so forth. But it was so rare and only connected to national security politics that for you and me, it's not Nokia. I'm a regular Israeli citizen, say, for example, and you are. We basically are protected by the legal system. You understand? I mean, we'd have to be spying for Syria or something like that, you know, or suspected of it. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, it wasn't there. Now, the Arabs was a different story. The Israeli Arabs were under a military government. They were from 1948 to 66. They did not have civil rights. They said they did, but Lamai said they did not. And, they, and, and you could suspend all the rules for them, and the Arabs knew it. And that was Israel's way of making sure that the Arabs wouldn't have an uprising against Israel. That's a whole Pasha by itself. Um, I assume most of the listeners know what I'm talking about. Maybe the younger ones don't, but anyone who's a certain age and over will know. Now, what happened was that as long as, for, for many years, the Israeli Supreme Court had this kind of Hold, you know, like I say, back off stance, not to be like the American, like John Marshall. And I remember that there were a number of, because there's politics and everything. They set up a system in 1948. Let, let, let me say this. When Ben-Gurion set up the state of Israel, so he knew that his party did not have 61, which would they need to run the country. And so from day one, they're going to need a coalition. I've spoken about this many times. And the way the coalition worked out, if you want to get down to the fine points, is that it was Ben-Gurion's party, the Mapai, which always got 40-something, 40 45, 46, 47, and the Frum parties, which was usually around 15, 16. So if you have, let's say, for example, 46 and 16, you know, the Agun and the Mizrahi already have 61. You see what I'm saying? But Ben-Gurion never wanted to be in the situation that Bibi finds himself today, in which the only other people in the coalition are the front parties, because he didn't want to get squeezed, and so he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. And so Ben-Gurion tried over the years to have other parties in the government in his coalition as well. One party that he had for many years was the Yekas. They actually had a Yekasha party, which was called Progressive Party, and it was really composed almost entirely of the German Jews who moved to Israel in the 30s, running away from Hitler. Perhaps you will recall, some of you, that the Zionists cut a deal with the Hitler regime early in the 30s, that based on certain economic incentives, uh, the Hitler regime will allow a certain number of Jews to move to Palestine, and they did. It was like 34, 35, 36 in all those years, which was a very important sort of thing. I forget how many. And those Yekas who moved to Israel, who were running away from Hitler and never would have run to Palestine otherwise, found themselves in Tel Aviv, Haifa, Yushalayim, those places. And they didn't exactly fit in with the socialists because they were, you know, middle-class people with, you know, professionals or they had stores they set up and things like that. And so they made their own party, which was, uh, you see Pinchas Rosen was the head. And 
they were German bourgeois, you know, uh, a party. In other words, they were in Israel, and they were 100% Jewish, of course, but they kind of modeled themselves on the liberal-type parties used to have back in Germany. And Ben-Gurion, who was prime minister year after year after year, used to always give them the Ministry of Justice, Misrana Mishpatim. So the idea was, the Yakis know how to set up a court system, you know what I mean, like, leave it to them. And they're the ones who made the court system and the appeals courts and the Supreme Court. You understand? And they set it up in such a way, I forget exactly, but you can look it up, you've probably seen it in the papers, that the court, it's, it's a little bit like the Sanhedrin. They, they elect their own members on board. So who gets to be a new member of the Supreme Court? If the Supreme Court members themselves say okay, and maybe the committee from the Bar Association, and maybe one or two people in the Knesset. In other words, it's an old boy network that they're only going to have people who are like themselves. Uh, the idea was that that depoliticizes it. Now, it doesn't really depoliticize it. It means it won't be subject to regular politicization. But it'll be subject to the Yekesha politicization, which is members of the same group will only elect people in the court if they have a certain type of education, a certain type of liberal outlook, middle-class liberal outlook, and will be you know similar to the ones who were there before. But the courts in Israel, especially the higher courts, had a pretty good reputation for being impartial, and so that's how the system worked. So again, the Mapai ran the foreign ministry, defense ministry, the treasury ministry, that kind of thing, but the Frum ran the Frum stuff, and the Yekas ran the courts. That's how it unfolded over decades in Israel. Even from early years, there were some, I remember there was a guy, Cohn, and another guy who wrote to Ben-Gurion and says, support me for being on the, on, the, uh, on the Supreme Court, and I will not vote against you when you have a national security uh, problem. You understand? Um, which really is, is lobbying. You're not supposed to do it as a secret. came out later. And you saw that they already were, by the 50s already, Ben-Gurion and the governments were worried the court shouldn't you know, clip the wings of the government in its ability to be as uh, stark as possible on national security Arab, uh, Israeli issues. Um, what am I thinking of? There were a couple of cases. Well, let me just second. Two cases, remember. You know, there was a two uh, towns on the border of Lebanon, I think, and Israel blew up the towns and promised they would let them back, and then they changed their mind, and they went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said... You can go back, but then they like changed their mind because the defense ministry said it'll hurt the national security, meaning they're willing to bend for for nationalism purposes. And more importantly, it's very interesting that there were a lot of Arabs in Israel. I mean, they're a minority, but there was 150,000 of them in the beginning of Israel. And in the early years, when they were ruled by the Israeli army, so most of the Arabs voted for Ben-Gurion they called it an, an independent Arab party, but really it was like stooges of Ben-Gurion. But there were some Arabs, and I don't blame them, that wanted to vote against. They didn't like the status quo. And the question is, what, what, what kind of party are you going to have? And it's a famous case that I think in the late 50s it was that they heard from Egyptian radio propaganda from Nasser that, you know what? We are telling you, the Arabs living in Israel, form your own party, which is anti-Zionist against Israel, and try to upslug and overthrow the state of Israel. Once you're a member of parliament, you have immunity, and they can't hurt you, even if you scream against Israel. 
Now, today, they get away with that. In fact, that's what happened recently in, in the most recent election. But in those days, the Supreme Court was sufficiently um, strong on the national security issue that they ossered that party. It was called El Ard, El Eretz, you know? And they said they, that the Arabs in, uh, who want to make a party like that, they can't do it uh, because it violates Israel's image as a, as a democratic Jewish state. Think about what I just said. Later on, they use this logic against Rabbi Kahana, Mayor Kahana. They say you're racist. It goes against uh, you know against uh, Israel's a democratic Jewish state. It's not democratic. So in other words, they did interfere in the politics. As far as I'm aware, the big change came in the late 70s and the afterwards for two things happened. One is, uh, and it goes to show you what it says. Is the, is the Dafiyami doing the Dharm now, maybe? He says, what well, it says in the Dharm, which is Moses Vasecha Tishmar Vasisa. Watch what you say. Keep your mouth shut. Uh, which is a big problem in politics in general. You make, it's, it's a tendency of politicians to make grand declarations, but then they're held to it. And, you know, what do you say that for when you didn't have to? And in the, uh, over the course of time, there were Israeli liberals, and I mean genuine constitutional liberals, who said, you know, it's ridiculous. Israel doesn't have a constitution. Uh, it's offensive to, to, to a sense of right and wrong and order. And if we don't have a constitution mamish, then they should have at least constitutional type legislation. And that's what they said of basic laws. So in other words, it is offensive to a certain, from a legal perspective, like the Knesset made a law. Who's the Knesset? You know, we don't know what that means even. You haven't defined it in law. What's the president of the country, the prime minister, the cabinet, and all this other stuff. We, you know, what's the Supreme Court? They haven't defined it in law. And so they passed these, what they call basic laws, which I think was a waste of time, but but, but they didn't. And they were full of high-sounding phrases. And Israel believes in, in, in life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that kind of thing. But then the Israeli Supreme Court in the 80s started to say like this, Okay, these laws are the equivalent of a constitution. So if the Knesset passes a law, we can say that the law is unconstitutional. So the Mamish did a John Marshall, but only 40 years after Israel became a state, or close to 40 years. And the guy who did it was Aaron Barak, who was a very brilliant legal scholar, a very big killinee, by the way. And he said that this is, you know, he wouldn't do John Marshall. And since he was, I would say, a liberal and on the left, so the newspapers and the public supported it. You understand? Uh, this is what they now call judicial overreach because it's the Supreme Court that has gone beyond, starting with, with Aaron Barak, not Aaron Barak, Aaron Barak. So in the 80s, it's about 40 years now. Uh, they're the ones who do not restrict themselves to being the highest court of appeal and to deal with specific cases uh, between a plaintiff and a defendant and who's got the law on his side or her side. But rather, they pass on the laws themselves. You understand? And, uh, as I said before, they are, the, the Supreme Court is supposed to be unprejudiced, but there's no such thing. So let's put it this way. When Rabbi Kahana ran, they say your party is illegal. But when the Arabs ran on extreme Arab uh, platform, which we know, we see sometimes the members of the Knesset are Arabs, Basically, say we want Israel to cease to exist, and we bring out the Palestinians. 
think of Ahmed Tibi, for example, or this lady who brought down the government last time, uh, whatever her name was, Wabi or something. And, oh, I mean, the Mamas say they were in favor of the terrorists. Matter of fact, I'm looking at the headline the other day. The president of Israel sort of like called her out. She said, what you did was unacceptable. But, you know, she doesn't have to listen to president of Israel. So, in other words, why does the Supreme Court say, if you support a terrorism violence against the state, so we deprive you of your right to be a member of the Knesset? See, you don't do that because that's a left-wing position, and the Supreme Court favors the left-wing positions. But if there's going to be a right-wing guy who's going to say, I think the law should, for example, take away their votes from the Arabs or something like that, oh, that will they'll, they'll declare puzzle. So the lack of um, objectivity, or that's not the right word, the lack of uh, uh, you know equal treatment for the right and left has created a situation somewhat like in America, but more so in Israel, in which you find the whole public that was polarized because the Supreme Court is perceived as being pro-left and anti-right. And now you have a situation, and, and by the way, pro-Chiloni and anti-Dati, which I don't blame them. The Supreme Court is a secular institution. But if it's a secular institution, then what they're asserting is, and this is what they want to assert, the supremacy of the secular over the religious, which is a, a fact, but the question is, how do you apply it? Now, what I mean is, the court said, remember the Tal Commission, that the Frum have to join the army. Um, how to set it up? We leave it to a commission, but we give the Knesset a certain date by which this law has to be passed to draft uh, everybody in the army. This is not the uh, it's not the power of the Supreme Court. It's not a legal issue. They claimed it was because it says in the basic laws everything has to be even, Stephen, fair, square. So this is a violation of that. In other words, by by setting up these laws with broad, um, uh, glittering generalities, you gave uh, weapons for the judges to say, you're not following what the laws say. You understand what I'm saying? Ikronos I think they call it. Ikronos And uh, therefore, you find that the courts, especially the Supreme Court in Israel, is viewed as a political actor. Now, the truth is, the left won't exactly challenge what I just said. The left will say, yes, they are a political actor. It's necessary to have one because the right is completely illegitimate. The right is fascist and the right is nuts and therefore we need the court to rein them in. But now you have a situation in which more and more people are voting for the right uh, as is reflected in the recent elections and the right has already created this as an issue and is saying, this is Smotrich and these other guys, they're saying, wait a minute, no one ever legislated Notice, the people of Israel never voted to give the Supreme Court that right to declare things unconstitutional. Never, 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 the court just took it. We do not agree with that. Now, the left-wing press is saying, what do you mean you don't agree with it? You're going to destroy democracy. And so what they mean is you're going to destroy the leftist interpretation of democracy. Now, I hate to use these terms right and left because I don't want to sound like Rush Limbaugh or something like that. But it, the polarization in Israel has led to this point where it's very interesting that the new government, as far as I can tell, going by the newspapers I read, you know, online, and the front parties, the Agudas part of this, all the rest of it, wants to do exactly what I just said, which is, wait a minute, there's something called the Knesset, they're elected by the people, I know sometimes you don't like 
the way the people vote. As a matter of fact, a couple years ago, I recall, you know, I had five elections now. I remember a couple years ago, um, I can't remember them all, when BB won again, there was an article in Haaretz or someplace like that where the guy said, I hold you should fire the electorate. <laughs> you know, it's the ultimate in the smug, you know, intellectual arrogance. The electorate was all wrong. I get that. You can hold that. But guess what? If you live in a democracy, you got to follow the rules. Well, but maybe I'm wrong. Meaning, what exactly is the definition of democracy? This is what's being debated now in Israel. So you say, what do you mean? Democracy means the rule of, uh, you know, you have free elections. The public gets to choose what it wants. Uh, but wait a minute. There are, two, there are two groups among the public. You go by Rove. Democracy is, is a system... It's the way it's unfolding in history and political science, in which you go by the majority by Rove. Now, that's pragmatic. The Rove is not necessarily right, but they're the Rove. So the principle of democracy is you gotta have some way in which you have a basic consensus that the you know, to, to act in a certain way at the governmental level and to have laws that the whole public is uh, required to to adhere to. So the principle of Rove says that the minority agrees of its own free will to follow the law set by the majority. The idea being that if it's a fair system, maybe tomorrow the minority will be in power, they'll be the majority, and then the, the she'll be on the other foot. Then the group that was the majority yesterday will have to follow the laws of the minority that now is the majority. You know, you, you understand. I used a lot of funny words, but I mean, you get what I'm saying. So there's A and B. Today, A's in power. Tomorrow, B's in power. Today, A has the rove. Tomorrow, B has the rove. And if we want a country that doesn't have a civil war, if we want a country that doesn't look like Syria or one of these uh, you know, African uh, failed states or something like that, we have a civilized country. So I agree to uh, obey your laws, even though I might not like them. And tomorrow, you have to agree to obey mine. But the problem with that is that that bespeaks a society in which there's a heavy consensus on the basics. So then the, not, the, the difference is, you know, relatively small. But as we have seen in my lifetime, sharp differences have emerged on basics. Uh, you know, if you're in America, one of these people that feel strongly about Roe versus Wade, I mean, I think you know this. They're people, that's their home at CS to fight against this. It really matters to them. There's no consensus on this. And if the Supreme Court wants to reverse this, then you have the opposite. People feel so strongly... Roe versus Wade, they're, they're not going to agree to accept the, the opinion of the of the other side. And w as opposed to the Civil Rights Bill or Civil Rights Act of the Supreme Court back in the 1950s, where everybody, with a few exceptions, agreed to abide by it. So when you have issues in which there are very, very sharp differences, and you simply say, I'm going to go by Rove and shove it down your throat, then what you're really saying is uh, you're alienating the, uh, a significant part of the public and you can expect a blowback. Uh, this is obviously what's happened in Israel. Uh, you know, a lot of these uh, Supreme Court things and laws are pissed. We had a, a, a liberal majority. Now you're having a conservative majority. But the liberal, major the liberal majority of yesterday doesn't want to abide by the conservative majority because they're saying it's undemocratic. But wait a minute. When you were in power, you put it in. No, that's different. What we put in was right. What you're putting in is wrong. You hear how I'm saying it? So he said, well, wait a minute, we hold, we're right and you're wrong. How can you say that? 
what you're saying is so clearly wrong that you can't say it's right. When you have that kind of dialogue, you have a complete breakdown of, of the consensus. A democracy cannot survive. That's one of the problems with Trump versus anti-Trump. You know, it, it, it too sharply polarizes the electorate. And uh, we have trouble with this in, in, in America. And by the way, in other countries as well. As you may notice, in Europe, they're starting to vote in uh, right-wing party, fascist party, whatever. Uh, and the others are getting angry. But the right-wingers say, well, we followed the laws when you were in charge. Now you have to follow the laws when we're in charge. So democracy is not pushing. Now, as I just said, there's a the principle of rove, which you have in the Torah also in the context of a Sanhedrin. Uh, the Torah doesn't have elections in the regular way. Now, the, the arguments, the philosophical arguments against the right uh, are interesting and go as follows. And it, there, it's, it's an interesting argument. You say that I'm a, I believe in democracy, yes. So let's say that means if I start a, a group and we win the elections and we have, let's say, for example, 60% of the public on my side, that's a big majority. And certainly more than that. So then we should win the elections and we control the government. You say, okay, fine. So from the point of view of legality, what if I say, okay, now that I won the election and have 60% of the, of the voters, which I really got, the first law I'm going to pass is to kill the other side. We're going to murder everybody. Whoa. Wait a minute. We're the government. We won the election fair and square. So now we can kill all the opposition. Whoa. Well, what's wrong with that? It goes like this. No, no, no. You won based on certain assumptions. If you kill us, that's, you're breaking the assumptions. You won based on the idea that tomorrow we can win. But if you kill us, we won't be around for you to win. For us to win. Do you see? I mean, I put it in simple terms. But that's what it is. So this is what they call, you, you, you know, democracies have to have the uh, presumption of some kind of, uh, of minority rights. Although that term is used now very loosely. But the basic idea was the 40% that didn't vote for you have the rights that you shouldn't hurt them. Uh, so you hear what I'm saying? So from the moral point of view, you say, yeah, you can pass laws, but you can't pass laws that you can kill us. What about, a, can I put you in jail? No, you can't pass laws you can put us all in jail. You can't. Pay, there are limits to what you can do. Now, technically, there aren't unless you have a constitution. Israel does not have a constitution. So the argument now is, if you pass all these laws, like overriding the Supreme Court and these other things, it's going to be so bad for us uh, left-wingers, us Chilonim, that it's like equivalent to almost like killing us or destroying us or hurting us a real bad. And that will make it philosophically illegitimate for you to pass these kinds of laws. The right-wing says, we don't agree that these are illegitimate. We, we believe that we say is a is one of the political positions out there. It's a legitimate political position. It's it's not wrong morally to say that since there's no constitution in Israel, the Knesset should have the highest power and the Knesset should be able to uh, be mavato, whatever the Supreme Court says. Listen, in four years, we're willing to have another election and you might win and you, you could do the opposite. And the left wing says, well, we know really the former having so many babies and the Sephardim and all the rest of it, we're not going to win in the future. Something, something like that. And so you hear that the, there's such a clash of the values. 
the big problem, as I said before, is, um, well, I didn't use these words, but I will, is what I call unilateralism. When you run a government, you run a, a society, you have to watch about pushing too far. Uh, it's not the nature of democracies in my lifetime to hold themselves back uh, from pushing too far. I've seen ever since, uh, in in my personal opinion, ever since the 64 election with Johnson and Goldwater, that, you know, if the liberals wanted to push real hard in their way, and Adraba, it looked like, you know, you're doing something great because you're forcing it down the other side's throat and they can't do anything about it. Uh, and that had generated Ronald Reagan and the Republicans, which is the opposite. Uh, they made a movie during Obama's time about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, was it Steven Spielberg? And the whole point, as I recall, was Abraham Lincoln forced the abolition of slavery down the throats of the South, and there was nothing they could do anything about it, which is true. Now, in the case of the abolition of slavery, I think everybody would agree that was a good thing. So they picked a topic in which they, you see that unilateralism is, is a positive force. And that's almost like a certain, uh, uh, you know, ideal, as it were. Uh, Clinton tried to do that, and uh, Obama tried to do that. And that's what generated Trump, you see? Because you, you push real hard in your direction, I'll push real hard in my direction. And it's broken dialogue, and it's broken communication and consensus, and the country's left in a, in a politically fractionated state. We Jews should know about this better than anybody else, because this is what happened to Claudius Ron last 250 years. Instead of a situation in which you have people that are all, all along the same continuum, just a question of a little more this, a little more that, but the basic consensus is there. As, for example, you might say today you find in the from world, I would suppose, <clears throat> you know, to use American language, from why you to Lakewood, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but now when you go beyond the consensus, just unilaterally, then it promotes a violent counter-reaction and with the breakdown of all dialogue and breakdown of communication and the fractionation of the body politic, which is why there's no such thing as American Jewry today. There are two. There's the from and the non-from. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying that's the way it is if you want to be honest. You understand? And one has nothing, you know, they, they like live separate lives, uh, which is unprecedented in Jewish history. But that's the times in which we live. So what you're seeing in Israel is a function of this. And I'm not saying it's a good thing because it's a bad thing, but it's very, and, and you know, each one can blame the other. Uh, but it's very interesting what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks because uh, I don't know, you know. Uh, nobody knows how the government's going to work out and who's going to get what position of the government and how BB's going to operate this way and that way. And are they going to pass these? If they pass a law to clip the wings of the Supreme Court of Israel, you'll see all hell will break loose. But the truth of the matter is they have the right to do it. They're just going to be tiny. This is so bad that what you're doing is so outrageous that, you, that morally you don't have the right to do it. But the other side is going to say like this. Legally, we have the right to do it, and we hold morally, we have the right to do it. And so uh, I see storms ahead and a lot of uh, radical disunity uh, within Israel, which is not a good thing. Uh, but I don't see anybody offering the possibility of, you know, how should I put it? Uh, I'll respect your side and you respect my side. The way, interestingly, Ben-Gurion did with the from back in 48, whatever you want to say about him, he recognized exactly what I'm talking about. 
And therefore, he said, um, you know, uh, we can't push the firm too far. That's why they give the uh, exemption for the uh, yeshiva bachim and all the resident. You can like it. You can dislike it. You can say it was a wide move, different move. He said, you know, the country has to operate on a basic um, consensus. And the icker you sowed is you can't push the other side too far. I don't think that, that idea is out there today. I'm running out of time now, so you get the general idea of what I'm talking about. And once again, I want to thank uh, very much uh, the Reft Hands for sponsoring this. I need a sponsor for the Haftorah this week. We have one for the Parsha. And with that, I bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.